Good morning and um, welcome. I usually say welcome to the Court of Appeals, but I, I guess uh, it's welcome to Duke Law, Court of Appeals at Duke Law. Uh, we always appreciate the opportunity to come over here. And um, your panel today, um, uh, Chief Judge Donna Stroud presiding, and uh, then we have Judge Valerie Zachary and Judge Hunter Murphy uh, with me for the panel today. And uh, looks like everyone is in place for our first argument, which is in the case of State v. Hemingway. And we don't have our little timers here uh, like we have at the court, you know, the little lights and everything. Um, but uh, our marshal is going to be helping me keep up with that. And um, normally uh, people will reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Is that is that? That's okay, I mean, you can do a different time if you wish. I did. Uh, Thank you. Okay. And um, just wanted to confirm that. And so I believe we are ready to begin. <coughs> okay. May it please the court, my name is Jason Yoder and I'm here today representing uh, Mr. Gerald Hemingway. This is Mr. Hemingway's second appearance in this case at oral argument uh, before this court. Mr. Hemingway's probation in this case was revoked for committing the new criminal offense um, of possession and sale of cocaine based on the testimony of a paid undercover informant that was relayed at the probation hearing by Officer Thompson. In Hemingway 1, this court reversed, vacated, and remanded this case to the trial court to determine if there was good cause to deny Mr. Hemingway his right to confront and cross-examine the paid informant. After the remand hearing, the trial court issued a written opinion or order finding good cause because Mr. Hemingway did not subpoena the state's witness to testify against him and because Mr. Hemingway's attorney failed to request continuance to subpoena the confidential informant. That order was ultimately filed uh, with this court after the time for filing a notice of appeal had actually expired, and we filed a writ of certiorari to have this case reviewed. Now, and that writ's already been allowed, correct? The writ was already allowed. Um, so the question before this court is now much narrower than it was in Mr. Hemingway's first appeal. Did the trial court err in finding good cause to deny Mr. Hemingway his right to confront and cross-examine the paid undercover informant um, where Mr. Hemingway did not subpoena the state's witness. And although the state in its briefing never really disputed that de novo review was appropriate in this case, um, I will address both the de novo standard of review and the abuse of discretion standard of review. And we believe that Mr. Hemingway uh, would prevail uh, regardless of the standard of review that would be deployed in this case. Um, so I'll start first with the abuse of discretion. Um, Hemingway 1 suggested that this was a discretionary decision, and this court's recent decision in Singletary also framed this as a discretionary decision. So although we disagree that constitutional rights and due process is subject to a discretionary violation by the trial court, um, we think it clears the abuse of discretion standard regardless. And the reason it clears the abuse of discretion standard is because there were actually two 
confrontation challenges in this case. There was a confrontation challenge to the paid informant. And then there was a second confrontation challenge to the lab analyst report and that the uh, defendant could not cross-examine the lab analyst. The trial court in this case actually affirmed the objection to the trial, trial analyst. There's nothing in the record here that suggests that Mr. Hemingway attempted to subpoena the trial analyst or he sought some kind of a um, continuance to subpoena the trial analyst. But in, its, in the remand hearing, the trial court actually made a completely contradictory finding and held that um, because Mr. Hemingway did not subpoena uh, the paid informant, he had basically the state had shown good cause for denying that confrontation. Are there any cases that you can point us to where we found an abuse of discretion just because the judge goes one way on one ruling that's very similar um, and goes another way in another very similar ruling? Uh, I understand logistically how, how you're, you're saying that is an abuse of discretion, but is there any case law at all on that, that kind of sub-issue here? Well, I, I don't think in my research I specifically found a case like that. This is very unusual <coughs> to have a judge whose rulings are completely contradictory on essentially the exact same issue. But I think if you look at the definition of a, an abuse of discretion, it's a kind of a decision that's arbitrary and capricious. It's not guided by reason. And here, if you have a set of criteria that you're going to apply, Assuming this is a discretionary decision, you have to apply that criteria uniformly. Um, and there's no indication here that the judge did so. I think, crucially, this non-confronted testimony came through the exact same witness. Um, the lab analyst would have come through Officer Thompson, and the testimony of this paid informant also came through the same person. So. I understand that abuse of discretion is typically the grounds where the defendant does not prevail. But this is an extremely unusual case with a set of facts that Mr. Hemingway uh, should prevail on. Is it, is it your contention, you talked about criteria that must be applied uniformly, that it needs to be uni applied uniformly in a single case? or that there needs to be clear criteria to apply uniformly in every case across the state? Well, I mean, our primary contention is that this court should recognize that this is de novo review and that the same criteria should apply um, across the state. And of course, we briefed that. <coughs> and if you read Esther Kong's um, law review article, it gives a very excellent summary of basically the state of the law around the United States um, and states have by and large adopted tests um, for de novo review. Typically, there is a test involved. Um, this, they've applied either a balancing test or this sort of reliability test. And those tests have given trial courts a little bit of guidance in how they make these kinds of decisions at the trial court level. So I do think that you want to have uh, a system where trial judges make similar uh, decisions all around the state. And of course, it's one of the reasons we have a Court of Appeals is to make rules like that so that we get uniformity in the treatment of certain issues around the state. 
One of the risks of saying that this is a truly discretionary decision is that it opens up the floodgates for this to, for good cause finding, to be different in every jurisdiction. Uh, that this constitutional right under the 14th Amendment that the defendant has should be the same in every jurisdiction in um, North Carolina. And in asking us to, to set and, and apply um, more or less what may be a new test in, for Mr. Hemingway, um, you've talked in your brief about both the balancing test and, and the reliability test. Um, do you have any opinion on which test is more appropriate and why, um, and, and why your client should win under that test? Well, um, of the two tests, my opinion is the balancing test seems to fit the best with the United States Supreme Court precedent in this case. Um, it's important to note that in, when that test announced, the United States Supreme Court said that this was going to create a new burden on the state. And if we find that the defendant has to subpoena his own wit the state's witnesses, you've essentially inverted um, the burden that the United States Supreme Court found there would be um, in this case. Um, I think the defendant obviously has a constitutional interest in cross-examining and confronting witnesses, particularly where they're paid witnesses or undercover witnesses. In this case, he has a very high um, interest in cross-examining um, this paid informant. Um, in other cases, there might not be such a, a, an interest in cross-examining a paid informant. For instance, um, you can think of phone records. I think that the defendant would not have a very high interest in cross-examining the custodian um, for phone records, for instance, because uh, it's not exactly clear what cross-examination could, could get out of a business record foundation. But in this case, it's sort of the quintessential grounds for cross-examination because you have not only a paid informant, these are notoriously unreliable and contribute to lots of uh, false convictions, um, but we don't know very much about this particular um, undercover informant. We don't know if she had a drug history or not. Uh, we don't know if she even knew what crack cocaine looked like. Uh, we don't, really don't know anything about this witness unless this witness were to testify in front of the court. How does the... Talking a little bit about, you know, being able to cross-examine the witness, what, why that matters, especially in, in a criminal context. And, and, you know, I think at least most people in this room are, are familiar with why that matters so much at trial and you're dealing with reasonable doubt. We have a lower standard here, though, which is the trial judge need to be fined by preponderance. How, if at all, does that impact um, what level of production um, the state should be held to? Well, um, I don't think that that's going to change the, um, the level of, of production in terms of the good cause finding, but it could uh, change the analysis for prejudice, for instance. So in Singletary, um, which you decided a few weeks ago, you essentially found that um, the failure to make a good cause finding was not prejudicial because there was a video of the person committing the crime. And in Terry... <coughs> Um, it was found not to be prejudicial because the, the uh, defendant ultimately admitted during the hearing uh, that they had <clears throat> not appeared um, and that it had been willful. So um, 
In terms of the prejudice analysis, I think um, that lower standard would be relevant. Um, but in this case, I think that Mr. Hemingway should prevail, uh, regardless of the um, standard of prejudice that's applied, because the only statement that was made at the revocation hearing to show that these were, were drugs was the one non-confronted hearsay statement of the paid informant that she had obtained crack from Mr. Hemingway. Uh, and no other evidence was put on during remand except for trying to find out about this, this good cause element, right? There wasn't any additional information put on regarding any of these underlying crimes, or was there? No. During the remand, there was no, no witness testimony at all. Um, it appears as though the judge, um, <clears throat> essentially the only fact-finding that he made was that Mr. Hemingway was aware of the name of the paid undercover informant, um, although he didn't make any finding that Mr. Hemingway was aware of how to contact that informant. Um, and then he has ultimately made the finding um, that his failure to subpoena was the good cause. And if, if we were to um, find in your favor that that itself wasn't a good cause, do we do we vacate and that's the end of it here, or do we vacate and remand for a new probation revocation hearing where your client would be entitled to confrontation like we would usually do with confrontation clause violation in a substantive trial? Well, I think it would depend on which standard review this court ultimately adopted. Um, if you um, decided this was viewed for abuse of discretion and you found that it was an abuse of discretion, I think typically um, an abusive ruling is remanded for another ruling in the correct legal light, right? Um, but if you found that this was reviewed de novo, because it's a constitutional right uh, that the United States Supreme Court announced, then you could make um, a de novo review of the good cause in this case. You could either affirm, find, uh, good cause was justified under the facts of this case. Of course, we don't believe that that's uh, the case, especially given that the paid informant was probably at home or working that day in the same town. Um, or you could find that there was no good cause for denying the. And I do believe then you would probably have to send it back for a new hearing. Um, whether or not ultimately a new hearing occurred, <coughs> you know. I don't know. It could be that the state would would refuse to prosecute um, a second time at this at this point. Um, Excuse me. In in Terry, we mentioned as a significant factor that defendant had failed to request that the the informant be subpoenaed. Mm -hmm. did, did the defendant here request that the the informant be subpoenaed? No. Um, but that part of Terry, I believe, has now been overruled by the North Carolina Supreme Court in its modified opinion in Jones. Mm -hmm. So in Jones, they said that there is, uh, in order to preserve this um, constitutional argument on appeal, you have to raise a confrontation claim under Rule 10A1 um, at the trial. And that happened in this case. Um, right. It did not happen in Jones, the Court of Appeals opinion. And Jones 1 probably should have been resolved on those grounds. Um, but instead, they went the one extra step to add this new rule of preservation in North Carolina. But that rule doesn't have any basis, um, either in 
constitutional law or in the statute. Um, and so we would argue that that is no longer a rule in North Carolina. And I don't think it is in Singletary. Um, there was mentioning of the subpoena, but it was not found to have been waived in Singletary because the defendant had not subpoenaed the witness. So it's our opinion that that's no longer good law in North Carolina. And of course, when Hemingway 1 was up, I argued that was not good law then um, because it really flips the burden of production uh, from the state to the defendant. So. With the reliability test, how does the reliability test, I know that the SMU article talks about it a little bit, but we've got, you know, 10 more years of experience with, with Crawford and Melinda Diaz since this SMU article came out. Is the reliability test being questioned even in those jurisdictions that were using it? Has there been any type of, of change in how many locations are using the reliability test, given that you know, Crawford and Melinda Diaz seem to throw out reliability when it comes to confrontation and the old Reynolds analysis? Um, where, where are we now in the last 10 years? Well, I mean, uh, uh, during my research, I didn't come across any state or federal cases sort of like abandoning um, the reliability test, but it does seem to be based on the pre-Crawford law, which is no longer uh, valid, at least for the Sixth Amendment. Uh, but of course, here we're not talking about the Sixth Amendment. We're talking about the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments and the embedded uh, due process confrontation right within those. So the analysis could be slightly different. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a confrontation. And although it's not a Sixth Amendment confrontation, um, that due process right is rooted in the same concept, that you should be able to face your accuser and that you should be able to ask um, a critical witness questions uh, to get to the truth of the matter. And of course, in a probation revocation hearing, we want to know the truth. Um, we want to get to the truth, and that's the whole object of having a hearing in the due process right. And um, confrontation is essential to that right, whether you consider it a Sixth Amendment right or a right uh, that springs from some other source. Is it significant that they found $500 in defendant's pants pocket from the, um, the source funds that were used in the control buys? Well, it is, a, it, it is a fact, but it's not dispositive in this case because there's no um, testimony or evidence that there was actually a transaction um, that involved a narcotic. Um, and there's no direct evidence without the testimony of the undercover informant that he was given that money. Um, it is some circumstantial evidence that he got that money. Notably, it's only a portion of the money. It's not the entire amount. So... Without the paid informant, uh, you don't know if she gave that to the roommate or that she actually just gave it to him for, for something else. I mean, you, you don't know what the transaction actually was that took place in, in that house at that time. Well, how much of the control by did Lieutenant Thompson have personal knowledge of? Um, I don't believe he had any personal knowledge of the actual transaction itself because he never went into the house. He took the undercover informant to a house. He searched her prior to that, I believe. She went into a house. She came back and 
she was searched a second time. Um, but the, the only thing he knows about what happened inside that house was relayed from the paid informant. That, that's at least my understanding of, of this. But then when she came out, she no longer had the money, and she uh, and she had something that a may powder, have been drugs. Yes. A powder or a white rock. Um, or it, the, this testimony was at one point that she had obtained crack. Um, but again, there you know we don't know <laughs> for sure what that was without her actually testifying as to what happened during that, that incident. Um, one of the issues I would like to talk about, and it's it's not really been contested by the state, but is, is the moodness issue in this case. And, and I wanted to walk a little bit through how a revocation has a collateral impact at the federal level. Um, because it's not something that has been briefed in North Carolina, to my knowledge. So um, at the federal level, they have what's similar to prior record level, it's on criminal history points. And um, the original imposition of a suspended sentence under uh, federal sentencing is worth one point. But the revocation in this case uh, created a sentence longer than one year and one day, um, and that would be worth three points under the criminal history calculation. And that's all in 4A1.1 of the uh, sentencing guidelines. Um, and also, it shifts in time the person's criminal history because a prior conviction is only counted if it is imposed within the prior 15 years um, prior to um, the sentencing in federal court. So the original um, sentence in this case, the probationary sentence, was in 2017, I believe, August of 2017. And the revocation was almost two years later in August of 2017. And 19. So um, this change basically shifted his criminal record in time um, and it added two additional years <coughs> to, um, his, to the time period where he'll have this as a potential collateral consequence that, that if he was charged in a federal, um, federal offense. Um, There was also some other aspects that I touched on in the briefing, including the fact that the civil money in this case was converted into a civil judgment based on the revocation. And of course, if this court would find that um, there was a confrontation problem here, then it's possible that this case would be remanded. Um, there might be a finding that there was no criminal um, conduct uh, that was proven at the hearing. And at best, I think the state would have a CRV in this case um, based on the um, evidence of the positive drug <coughs> test. So, if there are no further questions, um, I would uh, reserve the remainder of my time. Let me just ask one record question. Yes. Regarding the news. Um, is there an indication in here of... Uh, yeah, never mind. We'll go on. 
Well, I will touch a little bit on the mootness. I laid out every mootness argument that I could think of for probation revocation. Um, there are a lot of times it's difficult to know which ones. Some of them I talked about <coughs> in general, and they don't necessarily apply specifically to Mr. Hemingway's case. Um, I talked about the Social Security issue. I've had that in a case before, but Mr. Hemingway did not receive or have Social Security withheld during this time period. So I just want to make sure that's, that's clear. But there are collateral consequences uh, that are sometimes um, they're hard to predict. And although I tried to make an exhaustive list, I may have missed some. Um, the problem with mootness is that generally it's presumed in a criminal case or a quasi-criminal case because it's hard to know exactly what those collateral consequences are going to be. But in, in terms the of... The burden's always, in those cases, on the, the appellant to show that it's not moot and give us those reasons, and, and you feel like you've kind of exhausted that list as much as... As much as I can come, with come the record that's, that's in front of me, I tried to exhaust that list. You're right. Um, and and I and I do think I did find a case that is the, the burden of the defendant in North Carolina to show the appeal is proper <clears throat> and not moot. Um, other jurisdictions actually say that um, mootness is the burden of proving mootness is on the proponent. Um, so it would normally be the states in most other jurisdictions, is my understanding. But in North Carolina, there is some cases holding that it's the the appellant's burden. And we think we've shown that, but you know, if we have it, we did lay out two exceptions to the mootness doctrine, both of which I think apply in this case. Um, if there are no more questions, I'll reserve. How much time does he have left? Six minutes. In this opening portion, or oh, one minute in the okay. opening. Okay. Oh, we'll go on. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court. I'm John Green with NCDOJ and I represent the state. I signed the state's brief on 9-11-23 taking over for Kimberly Randolph who left for, uh, to go in-house with DHHS. So I do want to make it clear I've signed the brief. Um, first of all, it's very important that the standard of review is clarified. Um, in State versus Singletary just two weeks ago, this court held, we review or stated, instructed, we review a trial court decision to revoke probation only for manifest abuse of discretion. Not garden variety abuse of discretion, manifest abuse of discretion. There's, and in Hemingway, this court, I'll call it Hemingway 1, um, this court noted that the trial court has great discretion to admit any evidence relevant to the revocation of the defendant's probation. I think these are key. The um, Murchison case has not been mentioned today. It's extremely important. Supreme Court case. Um, their probation was revoked based in large part upon a printout from the administrative office of the courts. That's very significant here. In Jones, this, this court instructed, and, and Jones remains very good law. Jones and Terry both do. They've not been overruled by the Supreme Court, Jones. Um, this court in Singletary relied heavily on Jones and Terry just two weeks ago. Moreover, the Supreme Court in Jones um, talked about, and if you read the dissent, that gives the best uh, viewpoint of there's an, uh, the dissent says there's an extra barrier to getting review. Now, that may not be the case. I mean, that is a dissent, but the dissent said, hold on, before you reach the merits, we have this issue here. And I do want to make it note, uh, a very important point as well. 
Preserving an issue for appeal is not winning the issue on appeal. One of the objections that Mr. Lee, the defendant's trial counsel, relied heavily on was hearsay. He also raised confrontation. But hearsay is allowed in um, a probation revocation hearing because the statute expressly says the North Carolina rules of evidence do not apply. And as I'm sure all of these law students here can testify to taken evidence, and as we all can from having endured uh, a solid evidence course, is that hearsay is a huge factor of what they, what they test on. So it's, uh, hearsay is per se allowable by that statute. And that's very important as well. Um, I'm trying to, to uh, I've got so much I want to cover and I'm trying to collapse it all in one. But basically, the standard here, the burden, um, once the state has presented evidence that's uh, reasonably satisfactory to the trial court in the trial court's discretion, then the burden shifts to the defendant. Um, to demonstrate through competent evidence an inability to comply with the terms. All of these are very critical points um, in our law. General principles of probation law as well are important here. Probation um, or suspension of a sentence comes as an act of grace to one already convicted or who's already pled guilty. Well, does that case law still apply? That, that's one question I've, I've had for a very long time. Um, it's no longer an act of grace. It's a determination now by the legislature under the Justice okay. Reinvestment Act that these cases get probation, these cases the judge can choose. So if it's one of those that falls that requires probation, do we still have that concept that it's you know, oh, yes. it's basically a, a gift from the court? Well, it, it is. we forget history at our peril. And the history and derivation of probation comes from an act of grace. So, yes, it's been codified just like the uh, standard of review here has been codified. The abuse, uh, excuse me, the good cause has been codified. Um, now, you could talk about a reliability test or what the other one was, a balancing test, you know, Fourth Circuit law, Ninth <laughs> Circuit law, South Dakota law, or Oklahoma law. That is not what you remanded this trial court to do. You remanded this trial court to follow North Carolina law, and specifically 15A, 1345E, which has a good cause determination in it that our law talks about the amount of discretion that a trial judge has. So um, a proceeding to, uh, I, I want to talk some more about the general principles of this because they're so important. I mean, it, it almost sounds like we're re-prosecuting Mr. Hemingway, and we're not. This is, he's had his day. He was convicted back in 2017. Yes, he has rights, but those rights, those constitutional rights collapse into the statute. I mean, you said that in Hemingway, um, in, in that opinion. Um, and so, and that's been quoted since then. I think Singletary quoted that as well. So we have, we, we know what the rights are. They're not the Sixth Amendment. Um, when we read about Gagnon and Morrissey, um, those 50-year-old cases are, were codified into our statute. I, I looked at the official commentary for our statute, 1345, and it looks like that statute first appeared in 1977, and it specifically mentions Section C and D codifying the um, um, more, yeah, the official commentary. This section also codifies prior law and practice. Subsection C and D particularly respond to pri primarily to the dictates of Gagnon and Morrissey. These are not revelation cases. 
These have been in our law for 46 years now. And so when we look at that, we look at the body of law that's come forward. And, um, and so uh, <clears throat> proceeding, it, it's, it, we don't have to prove, uh, the state does not have to prove the violations beyond a reasonable doubt. That's critical in a probation revocation case as well. The, the facts that are important are allowing the probationer to speak on their behalf. There's a laundry list going through the statute, and that's what Coltrane did not do. The judge, trial judge cut her off back in the, the 1983 Coltrane case. Well, excuse me. Do you agree with the defendant that the informant statement is the only evidence that there was that the, that the defendant had drugs? The... Um, no, I don't agree with that for two reasons. One, as far as identifying the crack, um, uh, the informant did tell the lieutenant that it was crack, and you found this in Hemingway 1 to be sufficient. In the sufficiency of evidence part, the defendant had not contested that. So I'm looking at that as being established, that we've already established that it was crack. It goes to the, uh, but if you look at the rest of the um, evidence, um, you can look at, take, take the informant out, all right? Let's look at the evidence without the informant, just, for, just assuming arguendo, just for purposes of argument. All right, what do we have? A sworn violation report. Now, that's, con that's constituted sufficient evidence before. That's in our case law. We have a sworn violation report. What do we also have? That's at page 15 and 16 for this particular one. Because um, there's another one just after that that dealt with uh, testing positive for drugs. Okay, also in Hemingway 1, we noted that evidence of crack, which was unopposed on appeal. All right, I mentioned that. Right, now, even this is a, regarding the lieutenant. Even without regard to admissible hearsay evidence, and it is admissible of what she said, and I don't want to lose the fact of that. That is, if you're going to rewrite the statute if you follow what the defendant's trying to lead you to. The statute says the rules of evidence do not apply. Okay, so let me continue on, if I may. Uh, Lieutenant, we have his firsthand account. He met with Miss Brady at the staging area. He searched her. Somebody did. I hope he didn't. All right. Then he follows her to the defendant's house. He's following her. She goes in. She comes out. She, he follows her back to the staging area. She searched again. She hands him the conveyance. You know, well, let me back up. He had given her the marked bills. All right. That's around noon. Four and a half hours later, around 4.30, they do it again. Here's the money. Searched. Go to the defendant's house. Watch him go. Watch her go in. Watch her come out, follow her back, search her, got the drugs, no money. Next day, execute a warrant. He's got 500 of those marked bills in his pants pocket. We send people to prison for the rest of their lives for murder based on circumstantial evidence. That circumstantial evidence, and it's powerful. We've got the sworn violation report. We've got the lieutenant's testimony. Moreover, we've got what the trial court did um, as his good cause um, a finding here. You, you sent it, well, in, in the Hemingway 1 case, um, you instructed the state in reliance on State versus Jones contends the defendant did not request testimony from the paid informant or subpoena the paid informant to testify at the probation hearing. However, we need not extend the rationale of Jones, whereas here, 
There's no evidence to suggest defendant knew the state would be offering evidence involving a paid informant. Nor, and that doesn't say calling the paid informant, it's involving the paid informant. Nor is there any evidence in the record to suggest defendant knew the paid informant existed. Further, without knowledge of the paid informant's identity, defendant would have no way to issue a subpoena, let alone to serve one or request a trial court. I, I don't want to keep reading, but the idea is <clears throat> Hemingway 1 told the trial judge, here's what's not found. All right. Then later on, like the next page or so in the opinion, it says, on remand, the trial court shall exercise its discretion. Discretion, not a balancing test or reliability test or any other, you know, South Dakota, Oklahoma law, whatever. Our law in determining whether good cause exists for not allowing the defendant to confront and cross-examine the paid informant and make findings in accordance with the requirements of 1345E. Well, on remand, this court addressed this court, uh, the trial court addressed this court's concerns. Excuse me. This court, um, okay, excuse me, the trial court on remand found, <clears throat> okay, that the defendant's trial counsel was also defendant's counsel in the charges over the drug deal, the, the two drug deals we mentioned. The counsel knew in advance of the August 14th 2019 probation hearing of the existence of the informant. The DA provided the discovery responses that disclosed the name of the informant, Ms. Brady. Defendant did not subpoena Ms. Brady. Defendant did not request a continuance of probation hearing as well. And so what do we have here in the order? Um, Mr. Lee, the trial uh, defense counsel at trial, acknowledged he was aware of the existence of the confidential informant connected to the new criminal offenses well in advance. Um, I believe she was also mentioned in the indictment. Okay, he had that for about roughly 15 months. He's the one who also conducted discovery with the state. All right, so when they, um, uh, and Judge Sasser did what you asked him to do. He's twice let you know through his orders that in his discretion the evidence satisfied him. He also added, and this is a real interesting part here, he says the trial court found that the good cause existed not to require the state to call the confidential informant, Ms. Brady, and the trial court added to allow Lieutenant Thompson in the trial court's discretion to testify regarding his interaction with the confidential informant. Now, applying Murchison, the trial court's telling you he acted in his discretion to admit hearsay testimony. Also, we know that we don't have to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. That's something that's critical, I mentioned earlier. And that the um, uh, this judge has told you twice in his discretion, he's satisfied. He's reasonably satisfied. He's satisfied. I mean, the law is reasonably satisfied, but he's saying he's satisfied. Uh, is it your contention that the defendant was not prejudiced? The defendant hasn't shown prejudice. He wasn't prejudiced at all. All they did was object. Okay. At trial, judge... They, they objected, they confrontation, hearsay, and I think there was one more. But it wasn't, where is she? You know, bring her here. Let's, let me question her. We have to know something. Then on remand, on remand, October, because there is a, a, a requirement that the defendant have the right of counsel in probation revocation cases. On remand, on October 6th of 2021, 
This was the court-appointed counsel hearing. This is before the December revoca uh, revocation hearing. The defendant's attorney said, and I quote, Your Honor, we contend for the record that this matter is for all practical purposes moot. He's already served his time. We're waiving any right to any new hearing. He said that. Now, the trial judge unwaived it to the extent, no, we're going to follow what this court, what the Court of Appeals told us to do. And the trial court went and did that. But anything else, the defendant lost an opportunity. And 1345 says a defendant can waive it. And this defendant did. He waived. He didn't say, Judge, while we're back here, let's subpoena this uh, witness. Let me, let me question her. He's never. What, what was she going to say that's helpful to him? Yeah, I bought the drugs from him. She just, she'd cooperate the lieutenant. And so what we have here, um, no showing, no real showing of prejudice. I mean, I'm sure they can say, well, we could have asked her this, we could have asked her that. Well, they knew who she was. They said, well, we didn't. It's uh, at the December hearing or whenever we didn't have her address. Well, he had been conducting discovery, the same trial counsel. He could have also done the material witness order that was mentioned in Hemingway 1 about uh, asking the trial judge, Judge, we're not sure where she is. We don't want to mess around with this. Can you help us? This material uh, witness order could have done that. Going Did into the hearing. I'm sorry? Going into the initial hearing. What information, even though he knew the name of this supposed confidential informant, what information did the defendant have that the state was going to rely on her statement versus just the officer's observations? Well, the defendant would have no ignorance of law is not an excuse. They would know that in uh, rules of evidence do not apply, so there would be a very substantial chance that the DA may or may not call her. They would know of her importance because I believe she's named in the indictment. And if there was anything important for this to be gleaned as a defense witness, that's on the defendant to call a defense witness. It's for the state. And where else in our law is the DA required to call a witness? What I think's gone wrong in these cases, if I may, with all due respect, is the definition of adverse witness has gone awry. An adverse witness is an in-court person testifying. And here, the probation, uh, the, the probation officer and Lieutenant Thompson both were cross-examined thoroughly. Mr. Lee did a thorough cross-examination. I mean, you can't, you know, change the facts, but he had a very thorough cross-examination. The state and the trial court, I mean, excuse me, this trial court allowed the defendant to thoroughly cross-examination uh, cross-examine the witnesses who the state called. The test really is, if the state doesn't prove its case, motion to dismiss at the end of it. We do that in the primary underlying criminal cases. The DA doesn't have to, if, if somebody shot in front of a family reunion, we don't have to call Aunt Becky and Cousin Martha and everybody else or risk having a defendant say, well, there's a material witness you didn't call, I'm prejudiced. That's happened here. That's wrong. That's not. That should not be the law. But you couldn't call the probation officer just says <coughs> all the family members told me he shot so and so. And if they think they have something to glean as a defense witness, as they would in a primary criminal prosecution, the defense could interview them, could see if one of them said, you know, I really think it was Fred, not the defendant, who shot the person or did whatever the crime was. I mean, that's just good gumshoe defense lawyering um, to do that. And that's we're getting into making the state have to do the defense work for them. When really in a probation revocation hearing, 
with all of the um, informalities. This is an informal hearing. Uh, we're getting way off track to require uh, the, um, the state to have to guess. And, and look what's happened. We've had Singletary pop up, and we're going to continue to have more of these cases unnecessarily because of the errant definition of adverse witness, because the defendants are going to see who didn't the state call, and without any showing of prejudice, say, you should have called them. And that's, that's not correct. Or I contend it should not be the law. So, oh, no, please go ahead. I just want to clarify something with uh, one of your responses to Judge Zachary's questions about other evidence in here. You mentioned the sworn probation violation reports. Yes, page 15 uh, and 16 of the record. 15 and 16. Okay, so I'm looking at, at 15 and 16, mm -hmm. and all that seems to tell me is that it's sworn that he was charged with these things. Yes. Being charged with something is not a violation of probation, correct? Look at Murkison. Murkison had an AOC report showing that defendant was charged and had a trial date. And the Supreme Court of North Carolina held that's enough. Also, I want to talk about the, the thing that uh, uh, the defense uh, uh, counsel led off with, and that is the arbitrary and capriciousness. <clears throat> now, if you look at the transcript, um, the defense raised uh, a very thorough objection. And, and I don't want to take the time to read it all, but um, he's talking about hearsay and everything else. Okay, even concedes there's no rules of evidence, but, you know, and he, he goes on with that. The court, basically, the trial court's um, saying the court's reasonable satisfaction. We've got testimony. They saw a white substance, a green leafy substance. I'm going to sustain the objection. Okay. But what the trial court did that was genius here is the trial court should have sustained that objection because looking at the statute, the statute is 8-5820D. It says at any proceeding against the defendant, the, the, the DA has to follow the, um, get the lab reports within, serve it within either five days or 30 days of the hearing, five days of receipt or 30 days of the hearing, whichever comes first. Then the defendant has 15 business days or something like that to say whether or not they're going to object, and then the state has to call the, the, um, the analyst. Well, that wasn't done here. And so the judge was right for, uh, because it says that any proceeding against the defendant and that's in that statute, that's in subsection D. So the trial judge wasn't being arbitrary. He was protecting the defendant's statutory rights as he should have done and as would have presented an even bigger problem than this argument about him exercising his discretion arbitrarily. If I may have just a moment, um, I just want to look through my notes. One of the concerns about going as an appellee is kind of five seconds into the argument, um, it, the, the game plan's out the window. Um, uh, if you, uh, yes, here, here's another um, a point that I have here. Um, okay, this is not an automatic constitutional if they're assuming arguendo, there was a constitutional issue. This isn't one of those structural errors or anything like that that requires. In Singletary cited Terry. In Terry, this court cited Delaware versus Van Arstel, 
That is a um, murder conviction case, a primary prosecution, not a probation revocation. So the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendment apply. And even then, the court um, in Terry quoted it and said the denial of the opportunity to cross-examine an adverse witness does not fit within the limited category of constitutional errors that are deemed prejudicial in every case. So, uh, and also I want us to, to mention that we don't look at good calls in a vacuum here. We must evaluate it in relation to points such as the law, the competent evidence against the defendant, his failures to subpoena Ms. Brady, to ask the court for to subpoena or continuance, didn't ask for continuance, his failure to demonstrate prejudice. Judge Sasser was convinced. He's been convinced twice now. And so for the reasons stated in our brief and in oral argument and as possibly other reasons as well, we respectfully request that you affirm the trial court in all respects. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to touch on very briefly some of the issues the state addressed. Murchison, uh, it wasn't really talked about in the briefing, but of course there was no constitutional objection in Murchison, so this issue was never decided by the North Carolina Supreme Court. The fact that the rules of evidence don't apply um, does not change the Constitution, and the General Assembly cannot enact a statute that deletes the constitutional right of a defendant. But I, I guess, I think maybe to the state's point, to what Judge Sacker was, I think, trying to get out a little bit is, isn't that evidence of a lack of, of prejudice? If there are these other things that can add up to... Um, to a reason that the trial court could have found this anyways, even if we say the trial court um, made a mistake in finding a good cause to allow this in, defendant wasn't prejudiced because of this and this and this, such as we did uh, a little bit in Singletary, at least in the assuming arguendo portion of Singletary. Um, well, I, I, I think that's different than the, the question about the harmless error, but in terms of the prejudice, of course, I argued this was subject to a harmless uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the burden of the state to prove it's harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. And they really didn't brief that in their, their briefing, in my opinion. So they've waived that argument under, under Pincher, I think. But even looking at the evidence, this is not like Terry, where the defendant admitted uh, to the violation, or like Singletary, where they have a video of the person committing the crime. Um, this is about all of the evidence of the crime that occurred coming through a paid informant that's never been presented in the trial court. But so don't it's we, different. And if this case fails, every case will fail. Excuse me. Don't don't we um, handle that that tension between the con, you know, between the the right to confront witnesses and the admissibility of hearsay and the relaxed you know you know the uh, relaxed rules in a probation revocation hearing by requiring the defendant to take some actions such as objecting, which happened in this case, um, you know, and then requesting that the, that the informant be subpoenaed or, or the witness be subpoenaed, uh, some things like that that didn't, that didn't seem to happen here. Well, there was the constitutional objection, so the defendant satisfied that aspect that you're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He did not subpoena the, the witness, but there's no statutory rule requiring that. Or, or request that the, that the defendant, I mean, that the witness be subpoenaed. Or request, and there's no statutory requirement. That's essentially a notice and waiver provision is what you're talking about. And I think, although he didn't file a memorandum of additional authorities on the statute he just referred to, I think he's referring 
so maybe the, the notice and uh, that what you're referring to um, the, the the notice and waiver provision actually I might have briefed that in the in, the, in my brief um, so the General Assembly could enact that rule I think a notice and waiver provision um, but they haven't done that and I don't think that uh, the Court of Appeals is the legislative body that should be creating uh, new rules uh, of waiver uh, that the General Assembly has not enacted. Um, I also think that that the Court of Appeals should not be in the business of making rules of waiver uh, for a federal constitutional issue um, that are not supported by the United States Supreme Court uh, precedent. So um, I understand that that rule about subpoenaing the witness originated as a waiver rule. Uh, it has, in my opinion, been overruled by the North Carolina Supreme Court in Jones 2. Uh, this court should not attempt to resurrect uh, that rule and convert it into a, a new rule of uh, good cause. And I did want to touch on a few things. The act of grace language, uh, I believe that comes from a United States Supreme Court case, es Escobo. Uh, they actually have repudiated their own language in that case. Um, finding that due process clause actually requires a adversarial hearing and that probation is no longer um, an act of grace. You see that language repeated sometimes in North Carolina, but the origins of that is from the United States Supreme Court, and they have repudiated their own language, saying that the due process clause means it is no longer um, an act of grace. Which case is that that you're deciding? I'm sorry. Um, well, the act, of, the act of grace language comes from Escobo, I think is the name of the case. The Supreme Court has walked that back. Which, they have walked that? that back, and I'll, I'll file a memorandum of additional authority after this, uh, where they've specifically repudiated that language. Um, it didn't come up in the briefing here, but I've cited it in other briefs here in North Carolina. Thank um, The second aspect um, is... Um, the fact in, in um, Hemingway 1, um, there is some language in the opinion about how the uh, due process collapses into the statute. Um, we would suggest that it's the opposite, that the statute expands um, to fulfill the constitutional right. And that the writing of a statute does not convert a constitutional right into uh, a mere statutory right. You have the... Uh, right to counsel in, in, by, in statute, but it doesn't convert it from a Sixth Amendment right to a statutory right. <coughs> and the fact that the General Assembly enacted um, these provisions was to comply with the constitutional rule, not to limit um, the constitutional rights of the defendant. Even if that statute had never been written, Mr. Hemingway would have the exact same claim um, today. Even if we were to assume that that's an accurate portrayal of, of where the, the law is on that, in this case, at least by the law of the case doctrine, aren't we bound to follow what we said in Hemingway 1 on that aspect of it? Um, I, I don't think it's actually the law of the case because it was never briefed really in Hemingway 1. Um, it was not essential to the holding in Hemingway 1. The question in Hemingway 1 was whether good cause had been found at all and what to do with it. 
but what standard review would apply to a good cause finding was never briefed because there was no good cause finding in that case. So in my opinion, that language is just dicta that's been unbriefed uh, in this case. Um, but even if it was um, a holding of that case, it's our contention that there are plenty of cases holding that to be uh, incorrect. Uh, so, and if there are no further questions, I think I've exhausted my time. And I would just, we would just ask that this court reverse um, the trial court's finding in this case. All right, thank you for your argument. And uh, we're gonna take a brief recess so we can, I know some students need to move to class and some other people want to move in. Uh, so we're gonna take a brief recess to let everyone move around as they need